This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. And today we're fortunate to have Dick Lee, the CEO and Chief Innovation Officer at Value Innovations based in Castle Pines, Colorado. Dick is also the co-author of the book, Value Innovation Works. The driving force to everything that they do at Value Innovation is to help C-level executives address critical issues within their organization using their 10-step value innovation process. Value Innovations has provided consulting services to more than 54 profits such as Chevron, Ingersoll Rand, Johns Manville, Sherwin-Williams, Folded Pack, and Nautilus, to name a few. Startups such as Novamin, which was purchased by GlaxoSmithKline, and Pharma Diagnostics, as well as not-for-profits such as Compassion International. We are excited to welcome Dick to the podcast. Dick, tell us a little bit about yourself growing up, what you do, and who you serve. Bob, it's great to be here. Thank you, sir. I'm a Brit, and I came over here a long time ago. My wife will not let me share with you when that was exactly, but I'm a Brit. And the giveaway is that I've never worked a day in my life in the United Kingdom. So all my working experience has been in the United States. I'm a scientist by training. I'm an inorganic chemist. I moved out of the laboratory and was very fortunate to be running a business very early in my career. And I've run now being the VP GM of a couple of divisions of Fortune 500 companies. And then I left Johns Manville in 1991, figuring that I was going to become instantly rich with a product called Rocklight. It's lightweight drywall, 60% lighter than the stuff hanging on your wall here. And I was a miserable failure at doing that. So I've been forced into this area of talking about innovation and working on innovation since 1992, and have become a subject matter expert in value innovation, I think. Well, super, you know, and, and we talk a lot in here and I get really carried away, but before we go too far, what does value innovation mean? What a great question. It's delivering exceptional value to the most important customer in the value chain all the time, every time. And I'm going to highlight a couple of things. The first one is for a company in the B2B space, that value chain is fairly long and your direct customer is probably not your most important customer. And the second thing is, and I'm a scientist by training, so I tend to think that value comes from new products and new technologies. Nothing could be further from the truth. It can be a new business model, it could be work process, it could be workflow, it could be packaging, it could be uh, services. It comes in many, many different forms. And the great thing about business model is you can change that overnight and you can be value innovating within six months with this new business model. Well, did that help? It did. And I think the best way to go through and talk about value innovations, I think, is going to be talk about a couple of case studies so we can basically paint the picture of what you do. But before we get too far down the road, if people want to reach out to you and find you in social media, how do they do that? number of different ways. Number one is I have a cell phone, smartphone, and it has a number, plus one, seven two zero two nine one zero seven five eight. Or they can go to our website, www.valueinnovations.com. They can find me on LinkedIn, Dick Lee, PhD. They can find me on Twitter. Our avatar is at V-I-R-K-L. Email address, dick underscore lee at valueinnovations.net. And if you can't find me after all of that, I maybe need to get into the yellow pages. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as we talk about value innovations, and, and we talked a bit before the show yes. about various examples. So there's a company, 
and I'll let you go through and, and talk about what difference was made in the product and their journey. They went from basically zero revenues in 2009 to over $20 million in revenues in 2014. Yes. Let's talk about that case. So the company is called Folded Pack. The individual who started it had this great idea of coming up with a packaging material that replaced peanuts and bubble wrap. And he, I don't know how he got into this, but he met some vice presidents from UPS, and UPS saw this product. I'm going to put it up in front of the the camera now. For those of you that are just listening on the podcast, there'll be a video available on the channel, so you can see it if you need to. He had this great idea. And the UPS VPs looked at this and said, this is what we've been looking for, a green material to replace bubble wrap and uh, peanuts. And they invested in the company. Five years later, they put in $7 million and nothing has happened. And they called an individual, his name is Brad Fenn, who's now the CEO of Folded Pack. He happens to sit on our advisory board and said, Brad, we need your help. We have to do one of two things. We either close the doors on this mess that we've got, or we fundamentally change what we do and how we do it. Can you help us? And he said, well, I think I can. Let me come in and take a look. And he sat down with the people who were running the company and said, who is your most important customer? Of course, they had not the slightest idea. And he said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to develop a value chain and identify that most important customer. And in developing the value chain, we go from folded pack to distributors who buy the machines and sell these machines to would-be customers and the feed material to produce these things. Now, who do they sell to? Well, they sell to manufacturers of multiple different products. Who are they? And they weren't looking at or trying to find companies who manufactured high-margin, fragile products. Because the, the real key of this product is, yes, it is a void-filled product, but it also locks the material in the package in place. Nothing moves. So if you have a fragile product that moves around, it breaks, and it's high value, you've lost a lot of money. So they started to focus on the manufacturers of these products, companies like Coors Tech and HP, talking to the VP of operations and the VP of logistics. They were responsible for shipping the product and getting it to the other end, and it wasn't broken. And they started to share with them this wonderful product. And to demonstrate how effective it is, Folded Pack, and they still do it today, will ship you a 12-inch by 12-inch by 12-inch box with two coffee mugs, two light bulbs, and a brick. And you open it up, and you see this stuff and say, boy, this is really interesting. And then when you open it up, the light bulbs are not broken, neither are the coffee mugs. I'm going back now to 2013. Amazon came to Folded Pack. How they found out about Folded Pack, I don't know, and said, we want to change the way we ship our television sets from our distribution centers. Right now, we spend $160 per television set. We put them on to a pallet. Some of these television sets are only worth 100 bucks. Can you help us devise a packaging system? And they did. They tried. They shipped 1,000 television sets using UPS, using this packaging system, and only three television sets were broken. I should have shared with you that when they tried it on their own with no change in the packaging, over 350 television sets were destroyed. Yikes. Yes. 
was huge difference. Next step was, this is fantastic. We now want to ship, I think this was the Christmas of 2012. They said, we want to ship television sets from three of our distribution centers for October, November, December, right before Christmas. Would you do that? And they said, yes. After that test, by the way, I should share with you that the reduction in shipping costs per television set is $90 a TV. So was Amazon concerned about the cost of this stuff? The requirement now from Amazon to all manufacturers of television sets, so we're talking Vizio, Samsung, and all the rest of them, is that they must use the Folded Pack Expandos packaging solution. When the gentleman that came in that's now the CEO of Folded Pack, yes. he employed your process. He used the process. He was fully familiar with it. He sits on our advisory board. So the first step was, what's the value chain? Who's the most important customer? Okay, so, I didn't touch it. He did it. So let's talk about that. For the people that are out there going, this is news to me. Yes. And I don't understand value chain. I don't understand, you know, most important customer. You know, Kind of makes sense. Kind of makes sense. But do they, does that mean they buy a lot of our stuff? No, it doesn't. So paint us a picture of the process that was undertaken there to go from zero sales to basically being accepted by Amazon. It was a simple value chain. Folded Pack was selling to distributors. Distributors were selling to manufacturers. Simple value chain. But under the manufacturing organization, it is not that it is Amazon or that it is HP. Who within HP and Amazon is the most important customer within that manufacturing organization? And in order to answer that question, we ask three questions. If there's a problem with your product, service, or offering, who's responsible for fixing it? Number two, if there's a problem with your product, service, or offering, who stands to lose the most financially? And the third question is, who sees the value? And in the case of Folded Pack, it was very, very simple. It is the VP of operations or logistics has to fix the problem if there is a problem. They lose financially because they've got to replace the television set, in Amazon's case, and they see the value. Okay, so we, we've identified that portion, right? So we know who we're shooting at. Yes. Within the company. Yes. All right, and so then the most important customer for these guys was the operations. VP of operations, And yes. so we go from that. Yes. All right, what was the next step? What came after that? So in their case, it was very, very simple. Normally, it doesn't work out to be that simple. It, you didn't have to go through a huge explanation on Brad's part to explain to them why this worked. Mm -hmm. They saw immediately how it solved their problem. Typically, when we're working with clients, it is we've identified the value chain, we've identified the most important customer. We now want to know what are the unmet needs, unarticulated unmet needs, or the problems that these people have. And that leads us into a series of interviews, three in all, one hour each, We'll recruit 12 most important customers, we'll interview them over the phone, and we will ask them six questions. And this is what the questions typically look like. Number one, what keeps you awake at night? By the way, we send these questions ahead of time to these people because when you are hit with this, what keeps you awake at night, beyond your dog barking at night and your, the kids keeping you awake, you haven't really thought that thing through. So it goes out a couple of days before. What keeps you awake at night? Number two, what are the biggest challenges you expect to see in your business over the next five years? What are the biggest changes you expect to see in regulations and technology in your business? And then we might become project specific. 
So if, for example, we're talking about refrigerated transportation and the shipment of fresh and frozen food and the delivery of fresh and frozen food, we would now to start to focus on that. When you think about the delivery and transportation of fresh and frozen food, what are the biggest challenges you see? Bob, you got a sense of these? Oh, there you, are six you know, questions. You, yeah, you damage. You, you know, you've got spoilage due to lack of refrigeration. And so you're digging deep within your basically your customer base, going, what's bothering you? What's your pain point? Exactly. So within one hour after you've done those six interviews, so you've talked talk to 12 most important customers, you now know what their problems are. And so you basically correlate their answers, and you go, these seem to be the dominant answers, you know, and there'll be a bunch that are common, there'll be a few outliers. And then what do you do with that information? It's amazing, amazing how consistent they generally are. So yes, we record these telephone interviews, we transcribe them, and we analyze them, and we take the statements and comments that they make relevant to what we call a value curve. It basically is looking at what is the value that you are delivering to your most important customer today defined by the attributes listed in rank order of importance. We're now looking at that from them. They haven't got any idea of what this looks like, but we will develop a value curve. I don't know if we want to take a look at one of those things, yeah. Bob. Maybe we can, but here's a value curve. We're going to hold this up. Again, this is back to the folks that are consuming the video side, and we'll make a link to this available in the podcast. Okay. And let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. About some of the things for going back to the frozen food example. Yes. Uh, I'm looking up here. It's got safety and quality, value, preparation, complete meal, convenience, sustainability, variety, contamination, and price. And so those were the metrics. And, and so those were the attributes or elements of important uh, elements of performance that were important to Ms. Consumer. By the way, coming from the world of fast-moving consumer packaged goods, which I don't, but Procter, companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever don't regard men as capable of shopping. So it's always misconsumer. <laughs> so these are now listed, they're, they're rank ordered. So what's the most important thing to misconsumer? Bob, you can see it up there. What is that? Safety and quality. Safety and quality is in fact what's being shipped to me, high quality and is it safe to eat? And over on the right-hand side is the value being delivered to misconsumer on a scale, one to nine, where one is low, nine is high, what is the value being delivered to Ms. Consumer on that attribute? And so That's you, called the value curve. So we've got the people that we've talked to. Let's yes. say there's a dozen folks, yes. and they give us a series of these responses. This is, if you like, the output of our analysis. They haven't seen any of this, mm -hmm. and that leads us now into a second interview. We go back to the same six pairs, and we share with them, this is what we learned from you, we thought we learned from you, in that first interview. We now want you to critique what we've concluded because we may be wrong. Do you send it out to them in advance? Yes, or? absolutely. Okay. Yes, because we're going to ask them, these are the 12 or the 15. We have a requirement, by the way, no more than 15 attributes. We can't work with 96. We show them the 12 or the 15 attributes or what we call elements of performance. We define them for them and we say, have we captured the correct attributes? Are they right? Have we defined them correctly? And if we haven't, what should we change? When we heard you, we heard you talk about this more than anything else. So we rank ordered these attributes in, on, base, on the basis of citation count. How many times did you talk about these things? And this is the rank order that we got. 
Is that correct? And if it isn't, what should we move down in order of importance and what should we move up? And then the last question is, what is the value being delivered to you today on each one of those attributes on this one to nine scale where one is low and nine is high? And now if you could go up with a magic wand and turn the value uh, needle to the right, what should we be doing in terms of delivering value to you tomorrow? That takes about an hour to go through that interview. What you have at the end now is a vetted, validated value curve now from these 12 most important customers. So you transition from what you thought was the case now to what the real case is. What your customer thinks it is. Exactly. So now that you have an, an idea and it's you know mathematically ranked on what the consumer or the customer wants. Yes, most right. important customer, Bob. Most important customer. Most important. <laughs> what's, what's the next step? So now the next step is brainstorming. We now have an as-is and a to-be value curve. We have these attributes rank-ordered, so we've got two curves, a red curve and a blue curve. It tells us what we have to do to deliver this except, exceptional value, but it doesn't show us how we do that. So how do we do that? We go into a brainstorming session with the team. It's typically a team that works on these things and figure out what are our options on how we can move the needle in terms of value to deliver greater value to them. That then leads to a series of options which are shown to these. We go back to those same six pairs of most important customers and said, we've listened to you. We've heard what it is you want. We now have a series of options on how we could proceed to deliver this exceptional value to you. What do you think? And they critique those solutions. Interesting that you go through and actually ask them, your most important customer, what you want. Yes. And then you go, how do you want it delivered? Yes. And basically, if they tell you what they want, then that should take, and you're not selling them something, you're providing a solution. Bob, my experience is, and I've done hundreds of these interviews, is at the end of that third interview, and most of these most important customers, by the way, never had never met these other people that they're working with. Okay, the first thing that happens is I really like being on the phone with Harry and Bob. He kept me honest. The second thing, as they say, is we have never been through a process like this before. This is, we have never seen anything like this. This is amazing. And oh, by the way, we've chosen, this is the solution we want. When are you going to get it? Because we want it. Ask them what they want and then give them what they want. But it's what I like and I find fascinating is it's process driven. Yes. You know, if, and, and I think about, so we've now gone through these steps. Yes. And the most important customer has responded. So yes. you're in your three, third step of this process. Well, actually, it's 10 steps, but it's the third of three interviews, which okay. are the most important part of the 10 steps. Okay, yes. so you, you've identified. Then what's next? So now the company decides what they're going to do. Do we think we can now make some reasonable revenue from doing this? They would now take this and develop that new product or service or business model or whatever it is, which could go into a stage gate process or something like that. There are a number of companies out there that will help you do that, but we come to an end at that particular point in time. We have shared with you, if you like, the magic elixir that you need to get it right up at the front end. We're now getting into another area called StageGate, and I don't know how familiar you are with that, but it literally divides the product development process up into a series of steps called stages. You go through gate reviews, 
And typically, most companies are supposed to eliminate these bad ideas early on and eliminate them at the gates, but most don't. So the advantage of the value innovation process is you don't have lousy projects going into the front end of the stage A process. I hope I'm making sense, Bob. No, I, you know, and, and what I'm thinking from the consumer side, yes, and and I'm thinking also from somebody that's listening uh, to the podcast, and they're a business owner, and you go, you know, I'm I'm tasked with um, growing the company. Yes, and you go, well, go out and develop something, and and you know the challenge is, well, that's nice. What? And I think from, from what I'm observing and hearing from you is that there's a, a stepped process where you can identify whether you have the, you know, what they want and do you have the capability to deliver it. And then you go, well, it's, it you know, gathers an insight that's important. Now, um, we were talking previously before the podcast about the value innovation process. Yes, and that's 10 steps. When you first arrive, let's say a company determines they've got a challenge. Yes. And they engage your services. Yes. All right. And how, the companies that deploy what you teach effectively, yes. what are the critical elements that allow that to occur? Number one is ideally the CEO is fully bought in. And I'm going to give you an example of a company that we're working with now called Bobcat. Most people have heard of Bobcats. They're doing stuff around you right now. But this is Bobcat in Europe. And the CEO of that company got very excited when he read Value Innovation Works. And there was a guy working for him. His name is John Chataway, a Brit, who fortuitously had been at a workshop that we had done in Prague in 2005. And the CEO said, we're going to do this. Step number one is you need to be talking to the CEO, and the CEO must have a burr under the saddle that says, i got to do something, and i got to do something differently. So we had that all set. I went into Dobrich, which is a small town south of Prague, and the first step in the process is to now train the people who are going to be working on the process and maybe other people too on what this 10-step process is. Some people love it. Other people are bored to death. But we got to do some training and then they'll select a project that they want to work on. In fact, we've just changed the project. We were starting off looking at a mini excavator. We've changed it now to a loader and the rental business in the United Kingdom. You say, well, how could that be in the with a company that's based in the Czech Republic? Well, literally because they're serving the European market. So CEO, C-level exec support is critically important. You need a supercharged project leader and a team that's motivated by doing this. And if you have that, you're not going to lose. You may conclude, by the way, at the end, that what you thought was going to be the opportunity wasn't. I mean, it's just as good. It may well be, well, we thought it was a good idea, but based on what we've been through, it's not. So don't do it. And so the key element for failure, if they're going to try to take and adopt what you're talking about, is if you don't have C-suite buy-in. Exactly. Start from the bottom instead of the top. If you start in the middle of the bottom, uh, it's going to be a grind. So we've got to have that support. Yes. And so we've got the CEO buy-in. Yes. All right, so you've gone in, he's on board, and he's got the C-suite on board, and he's developed his team. Yes. Then do the 10 steps start to occur? Yes. Let's go through them. You want to go through all 10? Absolutely. Let's go through them. Well, you're a glutton for punishment, Bob. So step number one, mm -hmm. define 
the overall goal and the project objectives. And I will tell you, when we first started doing this back in 2002 and then through 2006, 8, 9, we never went through step one. We assumed, we never did any training on that. We assumed that companies knew how to set up a project. What are the goals? What are the objectives? Who's the team leader? Who are the team members? When are we going to start? When are we going to finish? And what resources are we going to need? We assumed people could do that. But we found that many didn't. So we now train on step number one. Step number two, back to this magic thing of the value chain, develop the value chain and identify the most important customer in the value chain. Step number three, and some companies don't want to do this, but I always think it's a great idea, is to develop the value curve for this product or service that you're talking about. So we haven't interviewed anybody and talked to anybody, but we've developed a value curve. We'll call it the as-is value curve. And why I like doing that is because the next step is contextual interviews. We're going to recruit 12 of these most important customers and ask these six go-for-the-throat questions, open-ended questions. So you, you start off with what you guys think versus what the customer tells you. Exactly. Most, the reason, most important customer. The most important customer. And the reason this is, is important is for the lead interviewer, the person who's going to lead these interviews. And by the way, you don't pick anybody to do that. You need a skilled person to do this. You know more about this than I do. What's very helpful about that as is value curve is, and I'm typically the lead interviewer, I'll have that up on the side of my computer just like you would have, and it's up there. So when somebody makes a statement about, let's say, food quality or food safety or temperature control, I've now got this on my value curve, and I'm saying to myself, I need to delve into this more. Mm -hmm. So you'll, have some, you'll be able to probe much better. Typically... We use six questions for that first interview. And by the time we're done with it, we probably have asked somewhere between 30 and 40 questions. So one question gets an answer, which leads to another question. After we've got that, we now know the unmet needs of these people. We've recorded these interviews. We've transcribed them. We've analyzed them. And now we can develop a 2B value curve and modify the as-is value curve. So looking at the 2B value curve that we put together, we now think we know what we have to do to deliver this exceptional value to the most important From customer. hypothetical to, you're out of your hypothesis and you're now into what the customer told you. Yes. Step six and seven, we go back and interview those same six pairs and share, this is what we thought we learned from talking to you in those first six interviews. And you share with them what you learned. Now what we'd like you to do is to critique the following. We identified the following attributes were the most important to you. Is that correct? And if not, what should we take out? What should we add? This is how we define those attributes based on what we heard from you. Are those definitions correct? And if they're not, what should we change? We heard from you that this one was the most important, this was the second most important, the third was most important, and so on. So you rank ordered them. We did it on citation count. Is that rank order incorrect? Excuse me, what is citation count? So citation count is, let's suppose there were 500 comments made during these six interviews. What we do is we, we, uh, we literally collect all the data uh, uh, comments under one heading, uh, let's say an element of performance. So if it was mentioned 25 times and that was number one, that's citation count. Okay. Does that help? Mathematical, that works for me. Exactly, yeah. okay. 
So step six and seven now is to go back to those most important customers, as I said, and and literally vet this these as is and to be value curves. Have we rankled them correctly? Have we defined the attributes correctly? Is the value that we share, we're delivering to you today, is that right? And if it isn't, what should we change? What do you want to see the value tomorrow? If you want to get super sophisticated and there's some, some projects where you want to do that, we have identified the following metrics to measure those attributes. Are they correct? And what's the absolute value of that metric being delivered to you today? So at the end of step seven, we have a validated as is and to be value curve. We now know what we have to do to deliver this exceptional value to the most important customer in the value chain. What kind of comments do you receive from these 12 willing question answerers? What do they say when they're done with this process? When they're done with the third step, uh, we ask them, so what do you, so we ask them about the, the outputs and what they would like to see in terms of the product or service, the new one. And then we ask them to critique the processes that they've been through and ask them, we walked you through a thing called the value innovation process. You didn't even know that at the time. What did you think? And they will share with us, we've never been through anything like this before. It's truly amazing. And then you ask them, well, what do you like the most about this? I, it was really great to have another person on the call. What we do is we take out this, uh, this I call it um, a difficult relationship between the interviewee and the interviewer. It's now much more of a fireside chat and a dialogue that's taking place. And it's not one person who's always on the hot seat. One guy can, or a gal, can be sitting down listening to what the other person says. One thing that people say is, but you know, Dick, what you've done is you've poisoned the well. Because person A said this and person B listens to it and they go along with it. I said, my experience has been that is absolutely not the case. Intuitively, you think that's the case. But what typically happens is one builds on what the others, you know, I hadn't thought about that. You know, that makes a lot of sense. And if you think about that, that means this. So it builds. They love the process. Absolutely love it. That's awesome. So we're at step. Oh, oh, so, oh, so I'm, so, oh, I'm sorry. We haven't got there. Oh, no, so yeah, I, I interrupted you. We define the value proposition. It's a piece of cake. It's not the marketing drivel that you normally see. Now that value proposition is written based on what the as is and the 2B value curves share with you what you got to do. Step number nine, the team now looks at, okay, we know what we've got to do to deliver this exceptional value. How are we going to do that? And that leads into a brainstorming event. It could be four hours. It could be a day. It could be more than that. We worked with a client a couple of years ago called Wenger. They're in the music storage business and music support business. They make storage systems and risers and chairs, anything that you would want for a band or an orchestra. And they shared, they came up with 22 options on what they could do to deliver this exceptional value to these people, 22 and they put these up on a website, and I didn't do the, the lead interview because I just didn't really understand all the background on this, and they got input from these, actually we interviewed 14, uh, 14 most important customers on what they liked the best on their top five. So they had five projects that were launched as a result of this one project. You know, I think the compliment that's paid to the most important customer by asking them, what do you want and what do you think? You know, and, and it, I, I think the surprising part might be is what irritates them and what you may not have known. You know, in, in thinking about 
as we circle back around with Value Innovations and your yes. company, and what do you think the top one or two benefits are that you offer a company that you come in to consult with? What do people typically tell you when you get done? That we bring a focus on innovation the like of which they've not seen before. I mean, I'm not going to mess around here. Is our is the sign outside our door McKinsey or Booz Allen or Deloitte Touche? No, it's not. What we bring to the table is we're all of the subject matter experts that we have, team members and partners around the world, India, Serbia, UK, Spain, all of us have worked in industry during our lives. We have welts on our backs to talk about what hasn't worked. Yes, we have some MBAs, but we don't walk around wearing fancy suits. We've learned through the school of hard knocks. And people really appreciate the fact that we focus on innovation only. That's all we do. And when they are, start to understand and see the results that they get, they just, they're in love with what happens. There's one key thing, and you've figured on or talked about it before, C-level support. We have a classic story. It was a wonderful story and then turned out to be a horrible disaster. We worked for a five-year period, four-year period with Chevron from 2005 to 2009. I knew the CTO at Chevron well. His name is Don Paul. And we were both members of the Industrial Research Institute. We could go, we could get sidetracked on that, but it's an industrial organization that met twice a year. And he and I were having a drink on a Monday night. And he said, Dick, what are you doing now? And I said, Don, we're working in the value innovation space. He said, send me a couple of PowerPoint decks, which I did. Six weeks later, he caught up with me and I figured I was going to be grilled on these PowerPoint decks. Wasn't at all. He said, Dick, what I want you to do is to come in to Houston or San Ramon. I don't know which location at this point. And I'm going to have my direct reports with me and some of their direct reports, and you've got a day to explain to them what value innovation is. And I'm going to share with them up front that what I want to do at the end of the day is to ask the question, is there value here for us or not? And if there is, who's going to pilot this process on a project that they have? Well, fortunately, they all voted thumbs up at the end of the day. And there was a guy, his name is Mark Puckett, who had a problem. And, and the problem was this. What can we do to increase oil extraction efficiencies with work process and workflow. Sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? And their goal was to increase it by 10%. And the reason they wanted to do that was because they were playing second fiddle to ExxonMobil. Their return on investment was worse than ExxonMobil's and their net income per barrel of oil equivalent was not as good. And worse yet, they never met their oil production forecast. And as you know, I am coming from the oil patch. That's something you cannot do. And we tried this and this was the, and we were working with IT. So the most important customer in this case is not outside Chevron, it's within Chevron and it's the business units. And they ultimately landed up working on more than a hundred projects using this process, incredible success story. And 2012, I remember reading the Financial Times that the return on upstream capital for Chevron exceeded that of ExxonMobil and Chevron's net income per barrel of oil equivalent was 18 bucks, and ExxonMobil was 12. Now, can I tell you that Value Innovations was solely responsible for that result? No, but I think we had a significant impact on that happening. The thing that, that 
runs around in the back of my mind is the fact that you can define the issue. You know, there's a process to define the issue. And then if there's a process to define the problem, then it seems fairly straightforward to go, we can take and get together, and there either is a solution or there isn't. Exactly. Once you, once you know what the problem is, you can now take steps to, to determine whether or not I can do that. I spent 30 years of my career, a lot of it in R&D, where we came up with new ideas, new solutions, and then we went out looking for problems to solve. They're dead on arrival. Yeah, a solution in search of a problem. <laughs> yes. So going, going back and thinking about your company. Yes. You know, you mentioned briefly some other consulting firms. What really makes Value Innovations different than perhaps some of the other uh, management consulting firms? Not recent uh, Harvard or Yale MBAs. We're seasoned executives who have worked in the trenches for a long time. Typically, we've got gray hair. Uh, we are passionate about this innovation space. We all came from the same basic area. And the fact that we're seasoned executives, so we've seen what works and what doesn't. We've, been, we've got wealth on our backs to prove it. And it's not like we're standing up in front of a group with a fancy PowerPoint deck to explain to them why they should be uh, investing in this. It is much more your kind of reaction to what's happened today. It's a very reasoned process to identify problems with the unmet needs of most important customers. People use the term voice of the customer, VOC, and I cringe when they say we use voice of the customer because there are multiple different ways of doing it, and most of them are very, very bad. We're doing voice of the customer too, but we don't call it that. And the way we approach it is entirely different. So our, the approach that we're using, we think, is unique. There's nobody else on the face of the planet who does what we do. I mean, that's casting humility aside, but that's where we sit. You know, I read through the book before you and I got together on this yeah. podcast. And what struck me is it seemed relatively straightforward on approach. Yes. And why is this not widely adopted and used? Well, that's an excellent question to which there is a fairly complex answer. Can I put this up in front of the camera sure. again? Yeah, go ahead. The Blue Ocean Strategy. Yes. This book was written by W. Chan Kim and Rene Morbon in 2005. It is the best-selling book in the history of Harvard Business School Press. And Blue Ocean Strategy, what they did was go back and look at the success stories, innovation success stories over the last 100 years. And they put together this, in quotes, Blue Ocean Strategy. They, by the way, had a fight on the, on the title of the book. This book is built on the value innovation platform. And they had been writing, along with other people, you probably heard of Gary Hamill, maybe not Constantinus Marketes. But they were all students of... C.K. Prahalad. Blue Ocean Strategy says you're swimming in an ocean with a bunch of competitors. You beat each other up. You bleed, and the oceans you're swimming in run red with your own blood. And the solution, quite simply, is render the competition irrelevant and go swim in a blue ocean. And CEOs were captivated by this and said, my God, that's what we need to do. And they buy 10 copies of the book and give it to their direct reports and say, read the book. This is what we're going to do. And having read the book, they said, well, yeah, it sounds absolutely fantastic, but we don't know what to do. 
So we came along seven years later and published Value Innovation Works and gave them a process to implement Blue Ocean it went Strategy. From what to do to how to do. Yes. And yet, it's still not widely adopted. Well, a lot of people think that they are doing value innovation the Blue Ocean Strategy way, and I search for success stories that they have, and I don't come up with too many. There's a classic in the book which called Yellowtail Wine, which I'm sure you're familiar <laughs> with, and Yellowtail Wine was a success story. And yes, the Blue Ocean Strategy folks did work with Yellowtail Wine in Australia. Huh. You know, as, as, we, as we talk about, um, you know, why it's not adopted. Yes. So... Let's go on, on the other side. So you arrive at a company. They've engaged your service. Yes. What should the business owner expect from you? First three or four things you might either do or ask. You floored me with that question. So typically what happens, it isn't that I'm walking in the front door as a result of a cold call and trying to sell them on the virtues of value innovation. Somehow, way, shape, or form, They've learned about what we do and how we do it through the website or through the book or talking to somebody else, and they know they've got to do something. I mean, I, we didn't talk about, so if you value innovate on a consistent basis, what happens? What you do is you drive sustainable, profitable growth, you increase company value, and I'm passionate about creating jobs. You create jobs. So typically, it's a situation where people are reaching out to us and saying, we need help, can you help me? And that starts the conversation. All right, so I'm the company. Yes. I found you. Yes. I've engaged your services and you come in to the company. Yes. What should I expect? What you would ex should expect is that we want to work with a, with a team of people within your company, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 people who are trained in this value innovation process that will last one or two days that we will select a project to pilot the process. So it's not going to be, you're going to pay us X million dollars in order to do for this the next five years. We're, you're going to pay us now to train a small group of people on the process and pilot it. And how long will it take to pilot this to come with an outcome? 10 to 12 weeks. Okay, so you can see results. And so you develop yes. champions within the firm. People who go through this and they see what happens become, they get the, they, they've, uh, what is it? They drunk the Kool-Aid. They've sucked the Gatorade. <laughs> they love it. <laughs> so when you're out looking at, at yes. potential clients, yes. what's the typical size of company that might engage your firm? Ideally, it's between 100 million in revenues and, and 2 billion uh, in revenues because they've got some, they have some money that they can invest in doing this. Have we uh, worked with smaller companies than that? Yes, we talked about folded pack expandos. Their sales were zero when Bradfan went in there. Uh, have we worked with larger companies? Yes, we talked about Procter & Gamble, GlaxoSmithKline, uh, and Chevron. But the, the sweet spot literally is in this $100 million to $2 billion net sales range. So if we have a listener out there and they're just, you know, this is, well, I'm not doing that gross number. Yes. Says, but I'm really fascinated. Call me anyway. So th there you go. You have, a, have an offer to reach out and, and get trained up. And there's a group of folks we would love to talk uh, to, Bob, and you're somewhat cut from this cloth, and they're called venture capitalists who make decisions about investing in a business. And when we talk to a venture capitalist about identifying the most important customer in the value chain, 
And Brad Fenn, by the way, uh, who is now the CEO of Folded Pack, is a VC. But he's one of a very, very few who have bought into this concept. He thinks all VCs should be using this process before they invest in a business. Interesting. I was thinking about that. And we talked about that before the show a little bit. Yes. You know, the private equity guys. And if you're looking at buying a company, you know, it would be an interesting process as you're valuing the company. Go, have they adopted any of these principles? You know, and, and, are, and are they really missing the customer? Their most important have customer. They, have they identified the most important customer correctly? You, Bob, you're into this. It's, it's been an interesting read. You know, and, and when you go through and, and you have arrived at a company that's engaged your services, yes, there's you've done it enough where you'll say this particular company, you know, looks like it's going to take and, and succeed, and this particular company is going to struggle. What are the factors that you think you identify that cause one or the other to occur? Typically, there are factors that you can't control. Uh, the first one is I'll call it sea level change, uh, seat changes. So when Don Paul at Chevron retired, and the new guy came in. His name is John McDonald. Uh, at that point, it's an extremely vulnerable point. And typically what happens when the new guy comes in is, well, you know, it was kind of interesting what was done, but, you know, I think there's a better way of doing this, and so we're going to give that a try. So seat-level changes kill you. Then there are other things that happen, which, again, you, 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 can't, you can't even see them on the radar screen. We trained 400 people in the value innovation process. We did 200, and then they did 200 internally themselves. They made a decision after that had happened to enter the Chinese market. Everybody was doing it. It was the end thing to do. Uh, and they set up manufacturing capability in China, and they uh, sent over 12 machines to produce the specific why. I don't know what the application was or why that was the, why that was the, the choice. Eleven of those machines all arrived at the same time. The twelfth machine arrived six months later. And what was happening was the, whoever it was in China uh, was literally stripping that machine down, figuring out what it was, and rebuilding it. So what Beckhardt had done was, yes, they entered the Chinese market, but they had also primed the pump for the competition that was going to produce the product at a much lower price. That really got their attention. I mean, it literally was a situation where the board of directors was very concerned about profits, stock price, and all the rest of it, and the focus now was fully on what do we do about China. That unfortunately gets in the way of value innovation when you're talking about building for the future. You know, things that you can't control. Cannot control, right. Unless you're the innovating company, you have multiple products and multiple innovations, and then that's just one setback you instead of well, one. Well, you know, I wish that Elon Musk and Tesla Motors was one of our clients, but uh, they clearly are a value innovation company. I don't think that they would necessarily know what that really means, but they are a value innovation company. There is nothing standing in the way of that company. I, I read a, a comment from... The CEO of Social Capital yesterday, who is investing huge sums of money into Tesla Motors, and said this company has unimaginable support from customers. It is a runaway freight train. The two points that he made to support that was that with the Tesla X and S sedan, which have been, well, the first Tesla S 
sedans rolled off the line in July of 2012, the market share now of X and S in the luxury market in the United States is 33%. They have blown away Mercedes-Benz, Audi, uh, Beamer, and, and all the rest of it. The Model 3 production will start in Fremont, California on July 1 this year, 2017. It's directly targeted towards the BMW 3 Series. Sales of BMW 3 Series cars this year are already off 25%. This company, which is driven by a vision that we don't need oil and gas, that the perfect world is we catch photons and store them, and then we drive on that, that vision is driving this company, and nothing is standing in the way. They'll be selling 2 million cars in 2021. You know, from your experience, what company comes to mind, um, perhaps it's the packing company, that adopted these principles and really just hit it out of the park? You know, you, th you would think that I would know the answer to that question because Beckart was doing extremely well for a period of time, as was, as was Chevron. I, I cannot share with you what the increase in net positive cash flow was as a result of um, increasing oil extraction efficiencies by those yeah. two things, but it was a four or five year period. I would love to tell you about a success story that's been going on for 10, 12 years. We don't have one. They typically come and then something happens, an unforeseen event that sidetracks them. Interesting, you know, and, and not meant to put you on the spot, but you yes. think, you know, is there a consistent innovator? And of course, most of us might think about Apple. Yes. You know, and, and you think about clearly they innovate. Yes. Um, I think Pixar. Yes. You know, and you see those innovating companies. And then the challenge is how do you go from basically one big idea and innovate, and then you become risk averse after that, and you, you don't keep the process up. So you've touched on another subject now here, and it's an individual I ran into through Twitter. His name is Simon Sinek. And I was watching an 18-minute video on millennials, and it was the first time I think I started to understand why millennials think differently to the way I do. But he's written a number of books, the first one of which is, is called Start With Why. So if you think about three concentric circles, the one in the middle is why, the one in the middle is called how, and the outer circle is what. You identified several companies, and I will add to the list. There aren't many innovation companies on the face of the planet, but Google is one, Apple is another, Facebook is another, Amazon is another, Tesla Motors is another. The difference between those companies and the rest, and that's a lot of them, is that those companies start talking about why they do what they do. They don't start off with talking to you about what they do. And the whole thing that's driving Tesla Motors is Elon Musk's vision. There's nothing standing in his way. We do not need oil and gas. We are going to clean up this planet, and this is how we can do it. And he doesn't worry about whether the production rates on the, on the line in Fremont, California are meeting the Wall Street analogist uh, expectation. He doesn't care. If I have a manufacturing problem, I can fix it. One more example. The production line speed for the Tesla S sedan is 20 centimeters a second. 20 centimeters a second. 
the production line speed for the Model 3, that's the one that's just about to come about, is just over three meters a second. That's a 60-fold increase in line speed. They're planning on introducing the Y, which is their crossover EV. The, I haven't seen the number, but what, from what I'm reading, they're expecting the line speed for the production of that car to be 10 meters a second with not a single person on that assembly line. The only people on the line will be the people who are manning and making sure the robots are doing what they're doing. Bob, no automobile manufacturer in the world is coming close to 10 meters a second line speed for automobile production. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting process to consider. And I, I think of the folks that are listening and, and they're running their company and they have their challenges. Yes. And they're going like, well, I'm not Tesla, you know, right. and, and I would like to take in and understand perhaps a way to break through yes. with my customers. And so the things that I would see is they can reach out to you. So for your company, where do you see your company over the next three years? I would like to see us quadruple or up 10x in sales over the next two, three years. It's starting to happen now. So value innovation is now leading to, and you and I have talked about visualizing the future or visualizing now, that's the next step we're taking. We're now, right now, with value innovation, looking at the front end, if you like, of the process, whether it's a new product or new technology or whatever. Visualizing the future or visualizing now is the front end of that. What are the things that I can think about doing in the future that I haven't thought about up to this point in time that are new things that logically make sense for us to do? You know, I, I think about that as a general social commentary. You think about the old industry replacement, you know, the folks that are losing their jobs. Yes. And, you know, they're, they're, the job doesn't necessarily go somewhere else. Right. It's just that a robot or automation took it. And you know, I think about, you know, as a general approach to life, if you're not looking to the future about what you're doing, are you irreplaceable? You know, and if you're not, or if you can be automated, you need to be thinking about that. And I think, you know, for, for the businesses, um, the, the retailers are seeing a great deal of that problem. You know, if you can be uh, in a you know, brick and mortar location, be replaced by an online service, that's clearly an innovation that wasn't an, a challenge 15 years ago, certainly. Right, yeah, brick and mortar, retail sales, uh, it's bad news. So kind of heading toward the end, we've been chatting for a while here, you know, and, and looking at how you got to this uh, place, um, what's, what do you think in your career was the smartest thing you ever did? Well, I have to say marrying my wife, she's been absolutely fantastic. She's an American, by the way. I said I was a Brit. Uh, what was the most significant thing that I did? I would like to tell you, Bob, that it was all planned out, but it wasn't. Uh, I was working for a company called Gould, who was in the battery business. They don't exist anymore today. And I was working at the portable battery division in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we made nickel cadmium batteries and lead acid batteries and we silver zinc batteries that powered torpedoes. And, but they had a new product that they were bringing to the market called the Zinc Air Hearing Aid Battery. Uh, the brand name is Activair. It's still, it's still in existence today. We didn't know that you couldn't make Zinc Air batteries. We did. It became, when it was launched in the marketplace, it became number one immediately. It still is number one. This is 30 years later. 
the VP general manager of that uh, business uh, was upset when Gould decided they were going to sell the portable battery division and the other battery divisions. And so he left. And Stanley Gaines, who was the group vice president at Gould, along with another guy by Dick Melrose, Stan came up to St. Paul, Minnesota, and said, Lee, you're going to run this business. I hadn't run a business in my life. I hadn't been to business school. I wasn't sure that I was prepared, ready to do that. <laughs> but that was probably the single most influential event that occurred to take me out of R&D into the world of business. It's very difficult if you're a scientist to become a businessman and, and recognize as maybe having some capability. You know, to that end, what do you think the best advice or, sing, you know, or perhaps influential mentor, what's the best advice you ever received? Boy, that's a, that's a great question. I'm not sure that it was advice other, more than it was actions. So before I went to Gould, I was working for a company called Universal Oil Products. They were a behind-the-scenes oil processing company. And at that time, uh, this is the middle 70s, catalytic converters were not on cars. They were being put on cars. And I worked for the automotive products division, which had been set up to produce these catalysts that were going to go on cars. And we had a production problem at our major manufacturing facility in Shreveport, Louisiana. It was the first time I'd ever been to the South, and I found out that what hot and humid really meant. It's in Shreveport, Louisiana. And they sent me down to solve this manufacturing problem. I had never been in a manufacturing facility in my life. And they said, Lee, we have confidence that you'll be able to figure out what the problem was. So they demonstrated faith in me by sending me down there. And we, we in fact, did solve the problem in a couple of weeks. Christmas that year, it's one week before Christmas, and Jim Dunham, who's the general manager of this division, wonderful guy, retired two-star general, lay priest. I call him a captain of industry. He was the guy who, if you had a problem, would bathe your feet. We don't have too many captains of industry left. But he walked into my office one week uh, before Christmas and he gave me an envelope and he said, you can, you can open this up after I've gone. But he said, I want you to understand that what you did for this company this year to solve our manufacturing problem was a major, major plus for us and we really appreciate it. I would wish that the check is bigger, but this is all I could afford, but I want to thank you. He left and I opened up the check and it was uh, one year's annual salary in the form of a check. It was the first bonus check that I've ever received. It was the most influential one that I've ever received and I learned that if you, are, if you put bonus systems in place and you make them meaningful, incredible things happen. And they did uh, at the portable battery division, so the next place that I went to. But Jim Dunham was a leader of men. He wrote notes to people with a green pen. They would do something, he would write a note, and they would get it through the mail, through the in-house mail. He just did stuff that made all the sense in the world. Give clear direction, communicate effectively, give praise when it's due, reprimands when it's due. Listen. Listen. There, there are certain, well, I, I won't go any further. It's a, lost, it's a lost art. It's a lost art, yes. So many things that I've learned through my career. Incredible, you know. And in, 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 you know, we're kind of at the end of of, of our chat. And, yes. And if you were going to offer 
to some of the folks that are listening, a parting piece of guidance or, or wisdom or anything that you might have to offer, what might you say? This is what I think it is. Take the time out to think about the future of your company. Take the time out. Right now, you're probably focused on what's going to happen the next three months, the next 12 months. You're fighting this problem. You're fighting that problem. If you can take out some meaningful time, doesn't have to be a lot of time, 15 minutes, half an hour a day to think about where do I want this company to go and what's the most effective way it means that I can do that, take that time out to think about it. Most CEOs today don't take time to think about the longer term. There's a young woman, well, she's not so young anymore, but her name is Mary Reinhardt. She's the CEO of Johns Manville, $2.5 billion company owned by Berkshire Hathaway. And she's been in the job now for about two and a half years. I know Mary reasonably well because she worked with me when I worked at Johns Manville. When Warren Buffett made that change, the CEO level, he came down to Denver, made the announcement. I will share with you, by the way, this is the first time that a a Johns Manville lifetime employee had been promoted to CEO in a long time. And when Warren Buffett said, Mary is going to be your new CEO, there were 300 people in the auditorium and they all stood up and cheered. I was not there, but I heard that that's what happened. And then after that meeting, he sat down with Mary and said, Mary, all I want you to do is to grow this company. So it's two and a half billion in sales in what, two years ago. And it was two and a half billion dollars when I left in 1992. So no growth in 25 years. And the message was, Mary, I don't care how you do it. You can develop new things. You can acquire new businesses, but grow the top line of this company. And Mary is still working with that today. But very sage advice from the Sage of Omaha. You know, with that, we're ending with Warren Buffett. Okay. And, you know, I, I sincerely appreciate your time and insights. And I hope the folks listening have learned. Bob, I want to thank you. It's been a very, very interesting hour and a half or however long it's been. But I look forward to continuing to work with you and your group of CEOs. It sounds absolutely fantastic. Appreciate it. Thank you. You bet.